We are continuing in our study through the book of James this morning, so if you have your copy of God's Word with you, please open it to that short letter, and we'll be in the fourth chapter. This is, I think, our fifth message in this book. We've got a couple of more after this, and what we've been noticing throughout our study of the book of James is that there are certain fruits that are being described. And these fruits are not given to us as sort of a test to make sure we're Christians, but rather as evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and that He is working through us. We've entitled the entire series True Religion, and that's because James in chapter 1 actually talks about what true and undefiled religion really is. Uh, It's not just self-righteousness, and it's not Uh, religion in the normal sense of the word where you're trying to earn God's favor, but rather it is genuine relationship with God and the fruit uh, that that produces. And so today, he is going to be tackling a really important subject, and that is humility. And, And I know, like, nobody wants to sit around and be instructed and lectured on humility, Uh, because none of us roll into that conversation thinking, I've got this one nailed. And if you do, you've just blown it. So this is, this is not easy, and I understand that. And as a pastor, you know, I, I, I have to teach the text, and I've got to go through the book. But when I get to sections like this, it's pretty intense. Uh, James is blunt. James is bold. Uh, James is not adopting a very seeker-sensitive approach uh, to these people. Uh, he is uh, offensive uh, in some of his language, uh, and maybe even in his tone. And so we have to acknowledge that. But he is dealing with matters of eternal life and death, and so it's, it's serious, and it's serious for, for us. And that's the, the posture that we're going to have going into this lesson today. So if you have your bulletin, uh, you can open it up, and in there I've provided you with uh, a translation, which if you're maybe new to our church, uh, you might wonder why I do this. Uh, it is not to undermine your confidence in the translation you have. It's just because sometimes... The words that are in the original are used deliberately by the author in such a way that um, if we translate it consistently, it makes it clearer for us. And the English translators, in order to provide variety, use different English words, synonyms. And it reads much easier, much better. But sometimes that comes at the cost of clarity. And because we're most concerned about understanding what God's Word actually says to us, I provided this for you as a way that I hope will bring us to that conclusion more quickly. So, if you will please follow along as I read. This is God's Word, James 4, 1 to 10. Where do wars and quarrels among you come from? Is it not this, that your pleasures are warring in your members? You desire and do not have. You kill and you covet and you are not able to obtain. You quarrel and go to war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you might freely spend on your pleasures. Adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Then whoever has chosen to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, 
He yearns with envy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. However, he gives greater grace. So it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. However, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is God's word. True humility is submission to the Lord. That is the very essence of true humility. It is submission to the Lord. It's understanding your position relative to his. It is thinking rightly about yourself. And by the Holy Spirit, a believer is going to overcome the natural evil in this world and the natural moral evil of the heart, and they are going to demonstrate this fruit of repentance. But it's not going to be something that we, that we earn because we work hard at it. It's not going to be something that we just cause ourselves to become as a result of self-discipline and hard work. For it to be genuine, it has to be a work of God. And that's what exactly the author is trying to get at here. And I think that what he's going to show us today is that it's reflected in relationship. Humility is almost always reflected in relationship. If you think about somebody in your life right now who is humble, you would define them as humble. I suspect that, that most of the reason for you describing them as humble is because you've witnessed them in a relationship. You've witnessed the way they treat other people. You've... Um, heard the words they say when trials come or when disappointment finds them. You, you hear the way they talk about themselves or don't talk about themselves and how they talk about other people. You, um, you know the accomplishments that they have done and you know how they view everything through the lens of gratitude to God for what he's done in their lives. They are humble in terms of their relationship to other people and to God. And I think that's what the author wants to get through to us today. And so the outline is pretty simple this morning. We're just going to look at humility reflected in relationships concerning others, concerning God, and concerning yourself. Humility, as laid out for us here, as a relationship and reflection in how you deal with others and with God and with yourself. So let's look at the first one, concerning others. This is really important because humility is essentially viewed in the mirror of other people. And so what the author says here to this particular group of exiled Christians, remember, who are spread out all over, he says, where do wars and quarrels among you come from? Let's break that down. Two words, quarrels and wars. The quarrels are these uh, periodic skirmishes and the wars are the more protracted battles. A war is something that can go on for years. A quarrel is something that you get into and out of relatively quickly. So you could essentially translate this, where do these protracted wars and these periodic quarrels come from? Now, 
let's first of all talk about where these are coming from. The answer could be from within you. Do you ever realize that uh, you're at war with yourself sometimes? You ever had that battle? You realize that you are your own worst enemy? The way you think, the way you uh, treat other people as a result of how you look at yourself? Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that he is at war with himself. That inside of him there is a spirit and a flesh and they're battling and he doesn't do the things he wants to do and he does the things he doesn't want to do. I'm sure you can all relate to this. I'm sure you can all relate to that time in your life where you've done something you didn't want to do and you didn't do what you wanted to do. Maybe you've even surprised yourself at what you're capable of doing. Well, there's a battle going on. It's a war. And that's a long-term war that you're going to have until you die and you get a new body. It's going to be a long-term war that you're going to battle in the flesh until one day you're glorified. Uh, But there are also these short-term quarrelings, these skirmishes that flare up from time to time. And Paul says both are alive in him. There's also a kind of battle, and that goes on even within the church. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing towards the end of his life, and he's writing to his protege. He's he's writing to Timothy, and he says to him, there are going to be battles going on within the church, and it's almost always related to false teachers. And so there is a time where you need to fight. There is a time where quarreling is actually a good thing. In fact, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I hear there's quarreling going on among you. And he says, that's a good thing because the right person needs to be revealed and the wrong person needs to be exposed. You realize that there is a good kind of division within the church? You realize there's a good kind of division? There is such thing as blessed subtraction when some people leave. In fact, you know, the, the, the Lord says that he is going to prune the church from those people who are not healthy for it. He also says that Satan will be continually sowing in tares. And there is an important distinction there, isn't there? The things that are pruned off by the Lord are not healthy for the church, but then there's this group of tares, and the tares, you remember, look just like the wheat. Satan doesn't want the people who are in there hurting the church to be identified. He wants them to linger as long as possible. And so there are times within the life of a church when when certain things are going to be exposed and they need to be addressed. And one of the things that a pastor needs to be able to do is go to war from time to time against that which would harm the flock. You, You need to have a pastor who knows how to fight, but not a pastor who fights all the time. It's one thing to to have elders and pastors who are able to fight the battles that need to be fought, and there's something completely different when you have a pastor or elder who just wants to be quarrelsome and contentious and is always trying to pick a fight with somebody. And so what James is saying to this group of believers is that within the church there's going to be wars and there's going to be quarrels because of what's inside of you, because of what's inside the church. Paul writes to Titus, he says, there are even going to be a temptation on the part of leaders to be engaged in fruitless debates. So for him to say this to us, it's important to see that it's within the church. Notice he says it's among you. This church that is in exile, it's commonplace there. And within this local church, there was this battle, and the battle was anchored to one particular thing. The quarrel was anchored to one particular thing, and that is this. Is it not that your pleasures are warring in your members? Now there's the first application. (laughs) One of the things that causes fights in the church, that causes protracted wars to continue, is that we, even as believers, have a strong temptation to do the things that we want to do for ourselves. We just have to own that. 
We just want to do stuff that's for our own pleasure. That, that given the opportunity to do something that we would like that would please us or not do that, we're going to be inclined to do what pleases us. It's just part of being in the fallen natural flesh that we're in. And yet, this is something that is very serious. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says that when you hate somebody as a result of them not doing what you want them to do, in a sense, spiritually, you're a murderer. You're a killer. Have you ever realized that, that, that by hating somebody, it's like killing them inside? Jesus says that when you have hate in your heart towards somebody else, it's like you're murdering them in your mind. It's mental murder. Anyone here been guilty of mental murder? I know we've all been guilty of mental arguments. I know that each one of us has had that moment where you're driving along and you have that made-up argument in your mind with somebody. You ever had one of those? Your spouse, your kids. It's amazing. Like, you know exactly what they would say when you said this. And it goes back and forth. And by the time you get home, you're already angry with them and, and you've never even had a conversation. You know? I, I've had somebody one time uh, woke up and she was mad at me because in a dream we'd had an argument. I'm not, going to say, I'm not going to say who it was, but so it can happen when, when and you're like, well, what do I do? Like, I'm apologizing. You know, my inclination is to apologize. I'm so sorry for, for what I did. I quite honestly had no idea. This, this, this quarreling, this war that goes on in our minds with other people, Jesus says, though, is tantamount to killing. It's where it all starts. And so to root this out and to be serious about it is one of the ways that we're going to be able to grow and bear fruit in a way that brings glory to him. He says here in verse 2 that you desire and you do not have, you kill and you covet. These are all violations of God's moral law. We had a good conversation about this today in the Sunday school class in the first hour. We talked about the, the uses of the law the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then the moral law of God, or the third use of the law as we understand that. And this eternal law that God has made that we are to live by and that we want to live by out of gratitude for Him because of, of what He's done for us in Christ and because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we can obey that. But when we don't and we violate it, when we don't get what we want and we turn our attention to attacking the people, even in our own church, that have gotten in our way, we literally quarrel and go to war. Humility is the opposite of this. And I would argue this morning that uh, for many of us, we need to understand that the church, the local church, is actually the proving ground for true humility, for true spiritual faith, fruitfulness, and that all of this is applied through the wisdom to know when to fight and who to fight. Remember, fighting isn't necessarily the problem here, but it's knowing who to fight and when to fight and how to fight. And instead, when it comes to your own brothers and sisters within the church, identify within yourself the reality that what may be causing the tension in that relationship really isn't what they have done, but it is that you aren't getting what you wanted. And your pleasures are not getting met. And as a result, you hate them and you're willing to go to war. So the first way in which humility is seen is reflected concerning others. The second one is concerning God. And this is very important. Notice what he says in the next part of verse 2. He says, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, obviously, the person who's not being asked here is God. 
We know this from chapter 1, that if you lack wisdom, you're to go to God, and God will give you the wisdom. And he says, I'm going to give you this wisdom without reproach, meaning no matter how many times you come back to him for that wisdom, he is not going to fold his arms and shake his head and, and grumble and say, I can't believe you're back here again looking for wisdom. I gave it to you last time and you ignored it. You see, the reason he doesn't do that is because he's not like us. You know, he doesn't keep a record. He doesn't say, well, you know, you can only ask so many times, then I've given up on you. In fact, the encouragement is to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. You know, God is a father who enjoys providing for his children. I think any loving father enjoys providing for his children. It, it, it's, it's no burden for him to meet their needs. He wants to meet their needs. He enjoys meeting their needs. And in fact, there's a way in which you honor your father by asking your father. You honor him because in a sense you are acknowledging that he has the ability to provide it for you. He has the, the influence, he has the wealth, he has the power, he has the wisdom, whatever it is. I've told the story before, but I, I, I like it, so I'll say it again. We were on a flight one time, uh, and I can't remember where we were going, but as we got up to the gate, I was looking out the window at the plane, and my youngest son was standing beside me, and uh, I said to him, that's our plane. And he looked up at me and he said, I didn't know we had a plane. <laughs> you know what I thought? I love this son. Yeah. He thought we had a plane. Yeah, son, there's a lot you don't know about our family. I am a pastor after all, you know. We all have our own planes. You see, he honored me almost by saying that. He, he says, wow, my, I thought my dad could actually afford a plane. How little do you know, son? <laughs> We're flying coach in row 78. You see, God's not like that, though. So when, so when we go to him and we ask for wisdom or we ask for anything, we're always underestimating what he can provide. Always. In fact, our minds are so feeble that we can't even comprehend what he would provide for us. Why do we not have it? Because, verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. In the original, this is combined with the following conjunction, so that. In the original language, it's very clear. There's a progression of the argument. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, so that. Why? What's the answer, James? What's the source of my unanswered prayer? What is the source of things not going the way that I wish that they would go? It is because your desire is to receive these things so that you might freely spend them on your pleasures. The same word, pleasures, in verse 3 is in, up in verse 1. The pleasures cause the wars. The pleasures cause the quarrels. The pleasures cause the unanswered prayers. The pleasures are the root of a lack of humility. My grandfather was one of the most humble men I've ever met. And one of the ways that his humility was always demonstrated to me is that he was always thankful. If you asked him how he was doing, he would tell you, I'm thankful. And without ever training me officially in that, without ever sitting me down to disciple me in that way, he taught me so much. I remember that to this day. And somebody told me, few years later that you can never be proud and thankful at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that true? 
You know, you can never be proud and thankful. If you're thankful, if you understand that what you have that is good comes from the Lord, then you are going to be humble. You're going to use it for his glory. You're not going to try to make it for your own pleasure. You're, you're, you're going to find joy in serving others with it. And so what the author is telling these believers is that within the church, there was this infection of pleasing oneself. It was resulting in these skirmishes. It was resulting in long-term wars. It was resulting in unanswered prayer and largely ineffective ministry. And now, in case you think maybe he's done enough with that, and that should suffice it, he goes after them with an extremely bold statement. And I wish I could somehow communicate this, the shock that this would be without doing something that would just seem to be for the purpose of shocking. Uh, I don't really think that's helpful or appropriate as a pastor, as a speaker. I don't think we should be saying things that are offensive just to get the crowd's attention. So I'm not going to try to do that here, but maybe by setting it up that way, you can use your imagination. What, what James is doing here would have shocked the people. It, it would have made them sit bolt upright in their chairs. Wherever they are hurting, uh, hearing this read, they would have had, James would have had their full attention. You don't go around calling people adulteresses. Now, in the original here, it's a feminine, it's the same for masculine, adulterer, adulteresses, adulterous people, your translation might say, and there should be an exclamation point after that. It's almost like he's leaning over and he's pointing at them right in their face and he is calling them an adulteress or an adulterer. He is bringing a heavy charge against the people. Now, I know that some would say, well, then clearly he's not talking to Christians. I would argue the opposite because the very point of being an adulterer or an adulteress is that you have cheated on your first love. I mean, you can't really be an adulterer unless you are violating that covenant relationship. You see, everything is in covenant. And so he's using covenant language. You have broken the covenant with God and you have chased after somebody else or something else. And so he, he leans back and he lets them have it. Both barrels. He calls them an adulterous people, exclamation mark. And then describes it. Do you not know? If you're an underliner, underline that word know. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word for objective knowledge. Not, not experiential knowledge, not existential knowledge, but objective knowledge. Do you not objectively know this fact, he says? It's a factual statement. Don't you know this? That friendship, brotherly love with the world is enmity with God. Brotherly love with the world is enmity with God. The adultery that a Christian commits against their covenant with God is to turn their back on him and to go back to the things of the world that they had forsaken when they first began to follow him. And just to say this at the outset so that no one's confused, we are all adulterers. We are all adulteresses. I mean, we don't go a day without being led away and back into the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride and possessions, the world of the flesh, the devil, even as a Christian. And so, I want this to be an encouragement to you this morning, because I know it can be hard to hear. Please don't underestimate what you're capable of doing, even as a Christian. Don't underestimate the power of sin in your life and the residual power of the flesh in your life, even as a Christian. If you set yourself up believing somehow that you will never again commit that sin, whatever it was, if you will never again fall in that way, if, if that could never happen to me, if you find yourself saying things like that, that could never happen to me, 
then you're going to find yourself in the company of people like Peter. <laughs> oh, I would never do that. Well, yeah, you will on display for everybody. And, and here's why it's really important to understand it. Not because you're going to fail. That's, that's important to understand. But where I want to come alongside and protect you from is despairing as a result. Because we have to remember that the assurance of our salvation is not anchored to our performance, but is anchored to the one in whom we've put our trust. Amen? That's, I know, it's the only sermon I have. Fine, it's okay. You can say that to your friend. I've heard this before. Fine, you can hear it again. That is it. That's where, doesn't mean we don't care about personal holiness. Quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, knowing that my security comes from the finished work of Christ, knowing that his righteousness covers me, knowing the cost that was paid to secure it on my behalf, does not make me then wash my hands of moral obligation. It makes me embrace it. I want to honor him. I want to please him. I want to, out of gratitude, walk in humility before him by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have that third use of the law, that moral law given to me. It should be my delight. So I don't really think somebody who is what we call antinomian, meaning that they just have no law in their life, no, no control, no standards, that's not somebody who has an over-appreciation for their security in Christ. That's somebody who simply doesn't understand security in Christ. So for these believers who are guilty of adultery, go back to the text, the friendship that they often have with the world makes them at odds with God and makes them his enemy. So he says here after that, then, now that you know, then this, whoever has chosen to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is where we have to be very careful. Because there are some who would say, well, how could you possibly be an enemy of God and still be a Christian? And the answer is that it really depends. <laughs> because there are some who make themselves and reveal themselves to be an enemy of God because they were never a friend of God. They were never a child of God. They were never saved by God. And there are others who make themselves an enemy of God because of their behavior. But because of God's grace, and because he will always bring you back to himself if you belong to him, there is a time where repentance occurs. And we're going to talk about de in detail about repentance next week. Originally, this sermon was meant to be just one this week and next week, but the more I got into it, the more I realized I'm going to have to break it up. So we're adding a, a week to the series. But next week, we're going to do a deep dive into repentance. If, if you've struggled with that doctrine of repentance and maybe how it differs from confession and what does it mean regarding my standing with God and, and how does it affect my, my life, how does it affect my prayer life, you know, what, 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 what does all this mean, how to be an enemy of God and still be his child, we're going to do a deep dive into that next week. So just hold on to those questions. Lord willing, we'll cover them next Sunday. But for this Sunday, let's just let the statement stand as it is. The one who chooses friendship with the world, the one who chooses to embrace what the devil offers us for our own pleasures is somebody who sets themselves up as an enemy against God. They dig in their heels and they turn on him. They turn on their first love. They turn on their beloved. They turn on that relationship. Now, let's look at verse 5. This is really a bit confusing. Depending on your translation, it's going to read differently. Um, I've probably mentioned this before. I, I, don't, I don't read a lot of commentaries when I'm preparing. I usually go to commentaries at the end just to make sure that I haven't come up with something that no one else has thought of before. I don't want to be original. If I realize that I'm the only one who has ever thought of this, it's probably not a good idea for me to teach it to you. 
But I do like to go sometimes to get some clarity, especially on a difficult verse, if the original is hard to read. And this is one of those verses. It's really a toss-up. I mean, really solid commentators and scholars and theologians, they don't really know what to do with this verse because it's very difficult to translate. It's also very difficult to place it because what the author does appear to say is, do you not think the Scripture says? And so what some of your translations would have is a quotation mark around the next part. But as you can tell, if you've done any kind of a search on this, there is no verse that says what he just says. You can't find that anywhere else in the Scriptures that we have. So, so the conclusion that I think is most reasonable is that the author is saying that the teaching of, of God in general, the teaching of Scripture, the counsel of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is saying something. So that's how we answer the first problem. The second problem is what he actually says, because you could translate this one of two ways. Either what you're looking at there is that he, God, yearns with envy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, or the spirit that dwells in us yearns with envy. So it's one or the other. Now again, it's not super clear which one it is, but at the end of the day, it's not massively significant. I think both of them would actually be true. First of all, it says here that he yearns, in my translation, with envy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Here's why I think that's what it says. The context here is adultery. And, and what we do know is that God was in a covenant relationship with Israel. It says that I chose her to be my bride. We know that for a time he gave her a certificate of divorce because of her unfaithfulness. We, we know that when all Israel is gathered together, Jew and Gentile alike, there will be that marriage feast and they will be together with him forever. So God has a very clear context for marriage. And so when he uses the word adultery, it's within that context. Is God jealous for his bride? Yes or no? The answer is yes. Is it, is it ungodly for a spouse to be jealous for the love and affection of their spouse? Is that wrong to be jealous in that way? Of course not. You're in a covenant relationship. And so some people say, well, God would never be envious. That's a negative word. Well, in this particular case, that means jealousy. And I think it could mean that he is jealous for his people. He doesn't want us to be out there living like the world. He doesn't want us out there doing the things that, that dishonor him and displease him. He's jealous for us. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that our own internal spirit, small s spirit, we, we just have this tendency to, to be filled with envy and a desire for our own pleasures. But I think in both ways, the scriptures would clearly teach that. It clearly teaches God is jealous for his people, and it clearly teaches that we, his people, are constantly envious of what the world has and chasing after it and wanting to fulfill our own pleasures. So how does humility look? Well, in relationship to others, it looks like you know how to fight, when to fight, and when to let things go. When it comes to God, you know who to go to, to, to ask for the things that you need, and then you desire to obey Him and please Him with your life. And then there's one more, and that is how it relates to ourselves. And this is where it gets really interesting, how it relates to ourselves. Look what he says. However, He gives greater grace. Again, I think that's why we're looking at this from God's perspective and his jealousy, he says, in the face of it all, in the face of our rebellion, I'm going to give greater grace. So it says, and now he is quoting scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see that in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. We see it in the context of 1 Peter 5, 5. He says that those who humble themselves receive from God grace, and those who receive grace from God humble themselves. It's all part of the same process. You know, humility is not even a work that you can generate on your own. Do you realize that it takes humility to be humble? Let me explain. It takes humility. You have to humbly receive 
the humility that he gives you by grace. You can't even say, I'm a humble person. You can't say, I've worked humility out in my life. I am working hard for humility. Here, read my book, Humility and How I Achieved It in 30 Days. You can't do that. Anything you have in terms of humility has been given to you by a grace of God, and therefore it doesn't become something you look to as a work or as a merit. And so he says this, uh, more grace is given if there is humility, and with that he can give this instruction. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Literally, be subjected. This is a passive, past tense verb. Allow submission to be imposed on you. Very important that you understand that, because I'm going to make a contrast with some other verses in a moment. What he's saying is you allow yourself to be the passive recipient of submission. Be submitted. Come under the authority of God. Submit yourselves, allow yourselves to be subjected, therefore, to God. This is for all believers. However, in contrast, resist the devil. It means to stick your foot down. It means to not be moved. It doesn't say attack the devil. It says resist the devil. Do you notice that even in Jesus' temptation, when Satan came to him time and time again, he didn't attack Satan. He resisted Satan, and what he used was divine Scripture. That's what it means to resist, and he will flee from you. There will come a time where that particular temptation will fade. So one submits themselves to God, submits themselves to his word, comes under it. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There has to be that active, intentional coming before him. And how does that look? Notice what he says, cleanse your hands, that's the external, you sinners, and purify your hearts, that's the internal, you double-minded. Let's break that down for a moment. He says, come near to God. Now, what the writer is implying and what the readers would have understood is an echo of the Old Covenant. It's an echo of Sinai. You see, when God revealed himself to the Jewish people out in the wilderness, he gave them his law. And when the time came for him to write down his law, he came down upon the mountain in smoke, in thunder. It was terrifying. The people were frightened. God says through Moses... For a couple of days, you need to wash your clothes and purify yourselves. Externally, you need to symbolize that you're separated and that you're cleansed. And none of you are allowed to touch the mountain. Your animals aren't allowed to touch the mountain. And if any person or animal touches the mountain, it's going to be killed. We're going to stone that animal, that person. We're going to shoot them with an arrow. And so the idea of drawing near to God in the Old Covenant context was really rare. I mean, nobody drew near to God. If you came near to God, it's because he called you up on the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and clouds and people were terrified. In this instance, he is saying, come, draw near to me. Just think about this for a moment. You're being invited. You're literally being invited. He's extending an invitation. It's like in the book of Hebrews. Remember when we studied that, where he says that we're able to to come to him? He opens up the door for us to do that. He invites us into his presence. This is the invitation, but notice how it's done. It is done with that ceremonial cleansing, kind of a a shadow back to that. He's not obviously talking about literally washing your hands, but he is saying your outward behavior, that which is external and visible, that which is internal. Don't be double-minded like back in verse 8 of chapter 1. 
Be single-minded. Some of you weren't here for that chapter one sermon, so let me just give you a quick review because it's really important. Some of the translations say that you shouldn't expect to receive anything from God if you doubt. And, And that's a really bad translation because it makes you think that the power of your faith is what results in what you get. So if you doubt, if you don't have a very strong faith, I'm just, not, I'm just not praying enough, I don't believe enough, I've got too much doubt, God won't do it for me. This is not what it says. It says, be unwavering. And that word wave is used over and over again. What it means is that you are unwavering in where you're going to get what you need. You're going to have varying degrees of trust and faith in your life. You're going to be like that man who says, I believe, Lord, help my what? Unbelief. How many of you have had that prayer? This is not about, well, if I just have enough faith, it'll happen. There's a lot of people that have been taught that, and it's terrible what that does to your, your understanding of God's provision. But rather, you have your sight fixed on God. Understanding your faith is weak will always be, faith, will always be weak. You will always be doubting. You will never have a perfect doubt-free approach to God, not until you're glorified. But at least you're going to the right source. And so you go to him, you approach him, you're not double-minded. How does this look? Verse 9, he says, be miserable. It's only here in the New Testament. It means to be distressed. This is hard to hear, isn't it? I mean, imagine, you know, I stand up here in front of you and I say the application of this is that you need to be, you need to be miserable. How do you want me to feel, Pastor, after this sermon? I want you to feel miserable. Is that what he wants? Should you feel miserable when you come out of church on Sunday? I'm going to say no. I had a conversation with a friend not too long ago, and he thought his church was a really good church because every week he walks out feeling miserable. I'm serious. He said, my church is a good church because every week I walk out utterly burdened by how sinful I am. And I said to him, well, then unfortunately, you're not being given the gospel because the misery that you feel because of your failure to obey God's law is real, and you should feel it, but it always needs to be amended with the reminder that Christ's righteousness covers you, and that there is absolute, full, and complete pardon in Him, and that your assurance is not linked to your performance. So, when He says, be miserable, we're not going to leave you here, don't worry, okay? We're going to pull you out. But for the moment, be miserable, all right? We're not going to leave you here. But he says, be miserable and mourn. It means to lament. It means to have guilt. These are active verbs. Actively be miserable. Actively mourn. Actively weep. Actively let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. That is heavy. It is no joke. People who take lightly the adulterous sin of chasing after the world are not people who look at their own sin and failure and mourn over it. But people who do understand the gravity of it, even over against the ultimate hope they have in the gospel, still mourn, still weep. Remember back to Paul in Romans 7? He had that battle inside going on. He says at the end, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's okay for you to feel wretched, but it's not okay for you to stay there. It's okay for you to understand that, but then is to turn your eyes to the one who lifts you out of your wretchedness and covers you in his righteousness. And here's how you do it in verse 10. Humble yourselves. Once again, this is a passive past tense. Be humbled, literally. Allow yourself to receive the humbling. 
receive at the beginning there, receive the submitting, be subjugated, and be humble before the Lord. If you're going to be that way before anybody, it better be the Lord. Amen? (laughs) If you're going to be subjected by somebody, if you're going to be humbled by somebody and receive that willingly, it better be the Lord and only Lord. I say that because the other passages of Scripture where submission is used are not structured this way in the original. One of the reasons why it's really important if you're going to sit under any kind of teaching is that the person who's explaining the Bible actually knows what the Bible really says, can can actually go back and, and with some degree of facility interact with the language it was written in because the original language is so clear about the way the words are literally built so you know what the author is saying. It's an entirely different kind of submission, for example, in Ephesians 5. You know, you can look at Ephesians 5.21 and it says, submit yourselves one to another. Voluntarily submit yourselves to each other within the limits of what submission would allow. You go to the next verse, 5.22, people say, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, the word submit isn't even in that verse. It's implied from the previous verse, and it's the same idea. Wives, voluntarily submit yourselves to the Lord under the guidelines of what is biblical submission and only to your own husband. The only other place where you are told to be subjected and be submitted and be humbled is actually in a reference to younger people obeying the elders, obeying the older people. And that's consistent throughout Scripture and in the culture of the day. The younger people obeyed the older people. But I bring that up because in this particular case, it is not submission the way we're often taught it. It is submission that is absolute. Absolute submission, absolute humbling. It's not done to yourself, and it's not relative, and it's not within a context. It is absolute. But when you do, notice what pulls you up. He says, and he will exalt you. If there's anybody that you want to be exalted by, it's the Lord. You can be exalted by man, and you might enjoy that for a little while, and you can exalt yourself, and you might feel proud, but the only exalting that really matters is the exalting that comes from the Lord, and the only way that the Lord is going to exalt you, the only way the Lord is going to allow you to be honored, the only way that though He'll never share His glory with you, He will share everything He has and is with you, is because you've learned humility. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of true religion. And it is seen in the way that your relationships are concerning others, concerning God, and concerning yourself. May the Lord add His blessing to the understanding of this text. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. And I just pray that today would be a day of reckoning for those of us who think lightly about sin. Maybe some of us have just gotten so uh, used to the the gospel being proclaimed here that we have become a little slack in terms of our appreciation for how serious sin is. Maybe the cultivating of personal holiness is not as important as it used to be, and that we feel almost liberated from trying. So I pray today that you would humble us, subject us, submit us, put us under your righteous rule. But for those of of us who are here today, and and there might be some, Lord, who who have just come in here feeling utterly burdened, they're barely able to be here today. They're just crushed under a weight of guilt. Oh God, be merciful to them today. Pour out your grace upon them today. Remind them that in their humility, 
there is great grace. Lord, we are so afraid sometimes to confess our sin, fearing that all of these consequences will come. Remind us that that is the false teaching of the evil one. You have told us when we confess that we will find mercy, we will find grace, we will find covering. And so I just ask today that for those who are struggling, that it would be a beautiful day of freedom for them as they begin to see that under your righteous rule, there is grace and there is an exalting, a lifting up. We've heard it in the Psalms today. We've heard it in the songs that we have sung. You lift up our heads. May that be the case for everyone who has heard this message today. In your name we pray. Amen.